You are listening to Ukraine 242. We bring you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine. Thanks to all our listeners around the world. Here is your host and Livin. Welcome to Ukraine 242, a weekly show featuring interviews with key people on the ground in Ukraine and from around the world. I am your host, Anne Levine, reporting from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Our guest is Jonathan Fink, a historian in London. He is the host of Silicon Curtain, a YouTube channel about propaganda, digital disinformation, politics, and corruption in the time of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Jonathan Fink, welcome to Ukraine 242. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and Silicon Curtain? Yes, absolutely. I'm absolutely delighted to be joining you today. So Silicon Curtain was created after the war began, after the full-scale war began. I'd been wanting to do something like this, actually, for a couple of years. Really, in 2021, when it felt like Russia was taking an authoritarian turn, I sort of started to sort of map out the channel. But it wasn't until the full-scale war began that I think that the impetus was really there to get it off the ground. And there's a certain amount of, let's say, lack of self-belief and so on. I'm not uh, a professional historian or journalist or academic, but I did learn Russian and lived in Russia for a number of years and did study Russian literature, history, language, etc. a long time ago. So that maybe helps to understand the background of why I'm doing this, you know, beyond the obvious reasons. I've been fascinated by Russia and how it works or how it doesn't work since the age of about 14 onwards. Where in Russia did you live? I first went to Russia, and this is before I changed my degree, and I was advised to go out and see if it was for me. I remember the head of department who I went into asked if I could change and join his faculty, came out with a fairly priceless phrase in Russian would be um, which means that Russia isn't for everybody. He got that right. So he said, look, you go out to Russia and if you like it, I think he was probably thinking, though didn't express it, you know, if you survive it after a summer there, then come back and we'll be delighted to have you. And that was in 92. And I spent the summer in Engel, flew out by myself, not really knowing any Russian and certainly not knowing anybody there. And 92 was a pivotal year. It was in between the removal of Gorbachev as leader And the following year was the sort of chaos in Moscow, which actually was very reminiscent of what we saw over the weekend when Yeltsin dissolved the parliament, shelled the White House building. So 92 was a pivotal year when, you know, the market reforms really kicked in. And it was the real low point, I think, in the collapse of the Soviet Union and its economy. And when people felt extremely poor and, you know, many spent that summer going out onto their dachas to grow food so they could subsist through the winter. An incredibly uh, period of absolute turmoil. But later, I then went and lived for a much longer period in St. Petersburg, which if you're going to spend a longer period of time in Russia, then that is a slightly more humane city, dare I say, to spend some time. When you were there living in St. Petersburg at that time, did you feel that it was inhumane? Certainly, I don't think I've ever had the kind of rose-tinted spectacles which some Russophiles 
tend to develop. And I think you sort of see that as well with some journalists who spend a lot of time out there. They tend to kind of go native and they see things through a Moscow-centric lens. They assume because they're small circle of sort of intellectual friends express some liberal values in their company, then there you go. That's, you know, that's what Russia is and that's what Russia's future is. I'm not sure I ever had that sense, maybe a little more cynical, maybe from, you know, readings of Russian literature and history. I found it quite a culture shock going there, especially in 92. It was a huge hammer blow to my mental state, spending time there. So would you say by the time you left that you had feelings similar to what you seem to express now in Silicon Curtain? I think in the 90s, I mean, there was a lot of chaos there. I I think of Russia there almost as a kind of patient on the slab undergoing some multi-organ surgery, and then the anaesthetic wears off, and the patient is acutely aware of all the pain. That's the impression I had of the 90s, but to an extent, it was also a period of much more open, I think, reflection on Russian history. So you had the pain, the rawness of it, you had a country defeated and its empire collapsed and people were quite humble. I mean, you'd hear nostalgia, you'd hear a lot of regret for the loss of empire, but Russia was on its knees. You didn't really hear anybody outright saying, well, we're going to rebuild this thing, we're going to take those territories back. It was a sense of nostalgia, mourning and regret. And I don't think there was hatred or antipathy towards foreigners. I don't think the propaganda in the Soviet period was nearly as effective as Putin's propaganda. It wasn't even hatred of the West. I don't think that was really targeted at individuals. So when you were there, almost never did you come across any personal antipathy or anyone expressing a view against you because, say, you were British or American or whatever. So a much more open period, a much more reflective period, maybe unique in Russia's history where you had a sense of a a degree of humility. I think that is the absolute opposite now. And I think my channel isn't so much as saying, okay, well, been 30 years and nothing's changed. It's saying, well, there was the potential for a better Russia. And we got a glimpse of what that might look like. And Putin strangled it. He's poisoned people's minds with lies, mythology. He's manipulated them. He's robbed them blind and weaponized everything about Russia, from its people to its culture to its literature, anything he gets his hands on and turn it into a weapon to feed, I think, his psychosis and his envy and his loathing and his hatred and his greed. He has done that. You know, he's burning the country up. I think it was quite a different place in the 90s. Would you describe for our listeners the Wagner Group and the 11-minute recording that was released by Prigozhin? Well, I'm not an absolute expert on mercenaries or military history, but obviously I have spoken to a lot of people who are. And I think one of the the key points to note is that Prigozhin is a protégé of Putin. I mean, he wasn't creating him as an equal. He wasn't creating, I think, the... Prigozhin as a powerful figure in order to take over for him. I'm not sure that's how Russian dictatorship works. You don't groom your successor, rather you strangle anyone who looks like they might be a successor. No, I think he was creating Prigozhin as a useful tool, as a kind of vassal who he could trust, and he could go out and do the dirty work. 
But I don't think he ever saw Prigozhin as anything more than a kind of servant, albeit quite a capable one who could get stuff done and had absolutely no moral compunction. And to that end, Wagner has become an incredibly powerful unit, doing all sorts of stuff across Africa, Syria and so on, absolutely diabolical war crimes wherever it goes. But technically, Wagner is illegal under Russian law. You can't operate a mercenary group like that within Russian territory. So it's already a sort of weird personal power tool that Putin thought he could wield. But I think that has now turned against him. And this person who he saw as little more than a sort of, you know, puppet whose strings he could pull has turned around and genuinely, I think, tried to pull off a coup. I don't think this is a stitch up between Putin and uh, Prigozhin because Putin comes out of this looking extremely weak. And the one thing you don't want to be as a Russian leader is weak. We know what happens to weak leaders. Tsar Nicholas II and his family were shot. Khrushchev was removed from power. And that's the best possible outcome for a Russian leader. And I don't think that's the fate that awaits Putin. So Wagner is an extraordinary entity. I remember as well that they allowed Prigozhin to empty the prisons of the most appalling criminals. He was allowed to create a 50,000 strong army using convicts and put the entire penal system essentially as his sort of conscription office. That is an extraordinary delegation of violence and power, which is normally the preserve of the state given by Putin to Prigozhin. So Putin, to an extent, has created this monster. I haven't done a detailed analysis of the address. I did listen to the one that he released, uh, I think it was Friday, just before the coup kicked off, watched a lot of commentary around it, and it immediately struck me, even before the coup had started, that Prigozhin was saying a number of interesting things. He was mixing lies, as he always does, but he was mixing some truths in there, which we haven't heard Putin ever say, or actually any of the propagandists or other politicians say, and that is that the war is wrong, the war was misguided, Ukraine is not the enemy of Russia, and actually the reasons for going to war were completely bogus. This immediately puts him, I think, in direct confrontation with Putin, and then, of course, the coup started unfolding. Describe the coup and the elements of it. It was a shock, I think, to many people, including a lot of analysts. I think in hindsight, the start of the coup was much more comprehensible than the way it's ended up. And it's gone from what seemed to be an incredibly kind of slick, well-executed coup into a bit of a clown show, not least illustrated by that incredible image of one of Prigozhin's tanks getting trapped in the doorways of the circus in Rostov. And I think that is where the speculation is now centering. Was Prigozhin perhaps bounced into this coup because he thought he had a lot more support than he actually did? Did he think that sections of the army would actually fall in behind him? It's clear that some sections did. It's clear that within Rostov and the border areas, he did have enough support that he could just breeze in and take over you know, two of Russia's larger provincial towns, one of which is the command and control centre of the Russian army from where the invasion was planned and executed. So that already is extraordinarily brazen and it suggests a high degree of planning and a high degree of support locally through the border guards and so on. And of course, he got within 100 odd miles of Moscow. So again, 
almost unchallenged by any local military presence, by the security services, which kind of shows up the whole system, really, and how weak it is. But then he stopped. And I think a lot of people speculated that actually he thought he would have a lot more visible signs of support than he actually did. And the speculation really centers around whether people got cold feet or whether he has actually been tricked into conducting this coup, perhaps by Ukrainian intelligence services, who've been able to convince him that he had far more support than he actually did. Now, that is highly speculative, and it may well be a clever piece of Ukrainian propaganda, but I reckon we'll know more over the coming weeks. Our guest is Jonathan Fink of the YouTube channel Silicon Curtain. I am Anne Levine from WOMR, Provincetown, Massachusetts. Thank you for joining us on Ukraine 242. Jonathan Fink, do you think that Prigozhin has the power and the manpower to execute a coup? A coup? No, I mean, absolutely not. And, and many military analysts who know a lot more than this than I do um, would say no. I mean, he says he has 25,000 fighters. The real number is far more likely to be in the region of about 15,000. Yes, they're probably quite experienced and battle-hardened, but if they were to face serious resistance from Moscow, if they were to face a sort of wall of resistance and potentially the sort of Kremlin Guard, Putin's private army units that one would assume were a little more loyal to him, if even the entire secret state which uh, many hundreds of thousands of FSB and other operatives, you know, were to show loyalty to Putin and were to be mobilised, then no, Prigozhin would have no chance at all. But I don't think he ever thought that that's what he would face. I don't think he would have mounted a coup if he thought he would have to fight his way into Moscow and into the centre of the Kremlin. He would have only launched this if he felt that he could stroll on in, that people would stand to one side and essentially let the coup happen. That's not to say that he cannot achieve that. I think Putin is now mortally wounded. He's been shown to be weak. And I think this is something the Russian people do not forgive. They clearly forgive any number of hideous crimes. We see that by people in the Rostov going up and uh, embracing Wagnerites, greeting them, patting them on the back. You know, these are hardened criminals, murderers, rapists who committed appalling crimes in Ukraine, not least against civilians, shooting hundreds, etc. No, I mean, Russians really, uh, generally speaking, uh, the people in Rostov don't seem at all concerned by that. But what they will be concerned at is the weakness shown by Putin, who not only could not stop this coup from happening, he also seems to have made lots of sort of really hard man type threats and they're not delivered on any of them. You know, he said he was going to sort Prigozhin out. And then a few hours later, a deal clearly has been made, and none of those threats amounted to anything. I think it's that kind of failure to show strength that the Russians will not forgive of Putin. As far as you know, do you think Prigozhin has plans for Ukraine? He is predominantly, I say former criminal, he is a criminal, and he is a business person. Unless he can make an absolute fortune in Ukraine, I don't really see what there is in it for him. He has clearly leveraged the battle of Bakhmut 
to build his personal profile in a way that nobody else has been able to do throughout Putin's 20-plus year reign. He's built a personal profile within the Russian people. He is able to command respect from a whole spectrum of people in Russia. And it's interesting, you know, even if he were to withdraw Russia from the war, which the Z patriots is absolutely not what they'd want, but he could turn it around now. And because of you know, the criticism he's made of Shoigu and the army. He could, for instance, if he came to power, say, no, we have to end this war because the military messed it up, because they thieved all the money for the equipment, because they messed up the plans, um, you know, they're corrupt, incompetent, etc. He could spin that around and probably get away with it because there's a certain element of truth in that. I don't think it's in his interest to continue the war. At the moment, I think he's pressed pause on the coup. He hasn't ended it. It's a, a mutually agreed temporary cessation of those hostilities. But if he was to renew it and be successful, and he could perhaps launch it from the territory of Belarus, so that could be interesting to see what happens there. Let's say he is successful. He wouldn't want to be in a position that Russia found itself, say, in 1917, because there were two revolutions in 1917. There was a proto-liberal revolution in February when Kerensky and his liberal coalition took over, but they did not end Russia's participation in the First World War. They carried on that disastrous war, and that decision directly continued the collapse of Russia, the collapse in morale of the Russian army and troops at the front, to the point where Russian soldiers were far more interested in shooting their own officers than actually continuing hostilities against the Germans. Now, Prigozhin is well aware of history, as is Putin, and they would have deep paranoia about that revolutionary period. He would not want to take charge, carry on the war, fully collapse Russia, and then experience another more brutal war, you know, revolution, and potentially a civil war afterwards. So I think his interest would be to end the war, to enter into negotiations with the West in order that hydrocarbon supplies could be restarted, almost certainly so that he could take a nice juicy cut of that. And part of that would have to go in reparations to Ukraine to start Russian exports up again. But as a businessman, that makes far more sense to me because there's far more money at play there, siphoning off 10, 15% of Russian oil and gas revenues than he could possibly make supplying the troops or you know, stealing resources in Ukraine. What is the disposition at this point of the Russian people towards the entire invasion? This, of course, is impossible to know. And I'm not sure whether there was a consistent majority ever actually in favor of the war. I mean, all the studies, and there's been a, a fantastic book by the historian Jade McGlynn, and there are other works starting to come out there that look at this. They suggest that there's a wide spectrum of different opinions. It's not monolithic by any stretch. You will have supposedly sort of uh, around 15, 20% of people who you could describe as strongly in favor of the war, Probably many of these people think war has not gone far enough, is not brutal enough, and would want to escalate it further. You have people who didn't want to serve, and many of these, of course, left the country. That may not necessarily mean they're unpatriotic. It may not automatically mean they're against the war, 
They just don't want personally to die in that war or take part of it. But there will be a percentage of people who could be described as, inverted commas, liberal. Ukrainians would typically say that Russian liberalism ends at the Ukrainian border. But anyway, let's assume there are a certain number of people who are actually physically against the war and think it's a really bad thing. And there are some Russians who are deeply, deeply ashamed and would tend to align with Ukraine in many of their actions and social media posts, etc. at the moment. But that is quite a small percentage, 5, 10, 15 percent. It's almost impossible to know. And then you have the remainder, the blob in the middle. And again, there'll be a huge range of opinion there, but mostly it's going to be characterised by apathy. People who might express various views about the war, either indifferent or positive or negative, or they may just say, I don't know, I don't know enough about it. I don't watch the news, etc. You know, these are classic answers in a dictatorship. Whatever their expressed opinions, these people are not going to do anything to stop the war. They're probably not going to do anything to stop Prigozhin or even to support Putin. And I think that's actually at this stage a far more interesting question. Not what they actually feel and think, but are any of them going to take any action? Are they going to lift a finger to save Putin? And I think if you go back a couple of years, the answer would be yes. You know, if you did this research in the wake of 2014 and the retaking of Crimea, if a similar coup scenario came up, there would have been a lot of people who would actively have defended Putin's version of the state and his regime. Now, I think you will have people just sitting back, observing it from afar, seeing how the dust settles and will not lift a finger to save him. That's why I think a second coup attempt by Prigozhin is going to be very interesting because it doesn't depend on the people. It depends really on how many people within the military and the secret services come out on his side and how many remain on the sidelines just waiting to see who the victor is. If nobody fights for Putin, he's done. What does this current chaos with Putin and Prigozhin mean for Ukraine? I think this can only be good for Ukraine. There is a bit of an outlier there, which is Putin, to show how brutal and tough he is, he might launch an escalation of this sort of ecocide strategy that he has already embarked on. So we had the intentional destruction by Russia of the Kohovka Dam and the appalling environmental and humanitarian consequences of that. He may go further than that. He may destroy the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, of which apparently four out of six of the reactors are mined. There is also a chemical plant, I believe, that contains ammonia and other toxic substances which are mined and would cause an absolutely cataclysmic environmental impact. But I think those are pretty much all he can do. Again, experts in this field suggest that the tactical use of tactical nuclear weapons is a bluff because that would be a red line for China. India and other countries who nominally Russia could still rely on to at least remain neutral rather than opposing it. I don't think he has too many tools left in his box there except threat and bluster and even that is really not working too much. I think this situation can only aid Ukraine because the dire state of morale that the Russian troops were already experiencing prior to this coup can only get worse when they see their leaders bickering, fighting. If they were to actually listen to Prigozhin's words that Ukraine was not a threat, that there are no Nazis there, and that the whole invasion was cooked up by the military for self-interested reasons, and many of the troops would be listening to these words, and their experiences on the front line 
will resonate with those words, perhaps in a way that they won't on the home front. Many of them would have been in the trenches, many will have committed horrific acts, but they also will have started to get a sense that they're not fighting a just war, that they haven't encountered any Nazis, and they've seen in terrible things inflicted on Ukraine, on people that look and talk a, a little bit like them. That's not to say they've got the same mindset or that Ukraine is the same country, but they would have gone there and perhaps questioned the reasons they were sent there. Thank you for that analysis. Before we wrap up, can you tell us a bit more about Silicon Curtain, what you offer there in your YouTube channel, how you started it, etc.? Well, when you compare it to you know some of the other commentators on the war who have hundreds of thousands of people following their channel, it's relatively small, but it has grown far bigger than I anticipated it would. And I've been able to do a lot more interviews than I ever thought possible and spoken to people who I could only have dreamed about speaking to. And I've been able to speak to many authors that I've admired over the years, including David Satter, Ed Lucas and, and others, Mark Galliotti, speaking to people like retired Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, Mark Hurtling, Fiona Hill, Bill Browder, and turned out to have conversations which I think have some value and were able to explore the fairly complex questions around Russian history and this war. The big discovery for me, though, of course, is understanding more about Ukraine. Because even though I'd met many Ukrainians when traveling and living in Russia, even in 92, the very first person I actually had a conversation with in Russia turned out to be Ukrainian and not Russian. So right from the start, 30 years ago, I had a fairly strong idea that there were key differences between Ukrainians and Russians because they were telling me that, that was the case. But what's happened over the last year is I've really been able to add some detail to that and understand the depth of the differences. And also in doing all these interviews with Russians and Ukrainians as well as Western experts, I've started to understand a lot more about the process of Russian history and mindset, but specifically the weaponized historical mythologies, the sort of lies myths and wishful thinking, as well as the sort of exceptionalism and the desire to regain imperial glory. And I've been able to really understand a lot more about those narratives and unpick them and see how the mechanics of that process work and lead people to think and act in the way they do. What is the best way for our listeners to access your channel? It depends if they want to get a visual experience. Uh, you know, some of the videos in slightly higher quality, but then a lot of my speakers are based in Kiev. They don't have good microphones. They don't have uh, fast connections. Same with a lot of Western academics. You know, they have rubbishy laptops and horrible microphones. <laughs> so if people can get past that and focus on the detail, then they'll get a visual experience on YouTube. And that's great for me because there's a little bit of money that YouTube generates enough to sort of pay the costs of running the channel. So for me, YouTube is the best one. But if you find the adverts irritating and you really want to concentrate on people's voices, then Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and most of the popular podcasting platforms would be the better way to go. I also put my rambling thoughts onto Twitter. So if you want also follow that, then by all means, that's a slightly different experience there. There's lots of memes and jokes and, and some fairly inappropriate things on Twitter there. But if they want the podcast experience, podcast is a great way to go. 
I appreciate you doing this interview no, this with me. This is great. And this is fantastic. Great experience. I mean, it's the first time I've had a, a chat like that. Well, it has been a delight to have you with us on Ukraine for two. Zombie by the Cranberries. I am Anne Levine, the host and producer of Ukraine 242. Our thanks to Jonathan Fink of Silicon Curtain. Editing, Ursula Rudenberg. Recording, Michael Levine. To see pictures of our guests and to access our complete library of past shows, go to ukraine242.com. Thank you for joining us. Until next week on Ukraine 242.